Psalm 103, the first five verses say this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, in all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took him, took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the, the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be, be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we give thanks this morning for your word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear today, that you would help us to comprehend what you have written, what you have given to us today. We pray your blessing in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We will be observing the Lord's table today. And so if you have not got a, a community cup that's in the foyer, you can feel free to grab one of those uh, before we get there this morning. <clears throat> If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 844, 844. Uh, many years ago, uh, when I was an intern here at First Baptist, I was reminded of that this morning, that uh, 20 years ago, I was an intern here at... That's, uh, and, and a young adult that's here was telling me that I was teaching them in, in uh, Sunday school. So that makes you feel good. So, uh, but 20 years ago or so, or so uh, Pastor Wigan asked me to uh, teach a Sunday school class, an adult Sunday school class. And uh, this was obviously while we were in the, the, uh, the old building. And some of you are familiar with that building. And this class met in the overflow of the, the old building. So it was, uh, it was the, uh, the other 
uh, there was three, still three, three adult Sunday school classes. This one met uh, under the overflow. I think Alackley McDonald uh, had taught that, and then uh, maybe Pastor Herman taught that for a while as well. Uh, but, but he asked me to teach a lesson there, and the lesson of that week was the transfiguration. And uh, I was fresh out of college, and I, of course I, I knew of the, the, the story of the transfiguration. Uh, but teaching that to a group of older adults uh, was intimidating, to say the least. I mean, he could, could have given me something a little, little more uh, straight, straightforward. Uh, but that was, that was the call. And I, I don't remember much from the lesson, quite frankly. Um, I can only imagine um, how, how bad the teaching must have been and how much grace, uh, grace upon grace, those people must have had for me. Some, some of you might even still be here. I mean, I know it's been 20 years, but, but some of you may, hopefully you're still in the church after that. But um, it, it, I, I can only imagine that it, but here's what I, I do know is I still remember that that was the lesson that I taught. Like it, it had some sort of impact on me that, that I still uh, remember that, that lesson. It, it, left, it left a mark, we could say. But in a far greater, greater sense, the actual experience of not, not teaching the, the, the transfiguration, but the actual experience of seeing Jesus for who he really is, like not, not talking about it, but, but seeing him for who he really is would leave a, a, a permanent change. It would, it would leave a mark like no other. One could never forget or be the same after being confronted with the revelation of the glory of God in Jesus. And it's that revelation that, that we're going to look at this morning in Mark chapter 9. Last week, we looked at the end of chapter 8, and Pastor Chris preached from verses 31 through 38. And there we saw Jesus' call to Christian discipleship. Jesus was confronting Peter. Peter had a misunderstanding of, of what the Messiah was here to do, his mission, as well as the reality of suffering for Jesus and ultimately for him. The call to follow Jesus was not a call, it is not a call first to glory, but to suffering, then glory. Having given the disciples this heavy message, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It's a pretty heavy message. After giving that message, Jesus had this to say in chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Some who are standing there, uh, in the context, verse 2 will tell us that he's referring to Peter, James, and John. Uh, Jesus gave a promise here. The promise was that there will be those, these three in particular, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, that, that may be difficult for us to, to, to understand by itself. Um, as when we think of the kingdom of God, we probably are thinking about what is to come. Right? The kingdom that is to come, the, the, quite the literal kingdom of Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth. In that sense, it would be very hard to put this together. It would be hard to understand what Jesus is saying. What is he trying to say? Are, are Peter, James, and John going to live until Jesus comes back? Is that what he is saying? Well, one of the best ways uh, to, to deal with a difficult verse in the Bible, is not always true, but one of the ways is to keep reading. Sometimes we come to a difficult part in the Bible, we stop reading and say, I don't, I don't understand what he's trying to say. I, 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 don't, I don't get it. Well, if we keep reading, we might, we might be helped out. By, by more detail and by context. And so as we keep reading, we find out the very next event that Mark offers, uh, offers up is what's called the transfiguration. 
in both in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, they put, put these two things right together. This comment about those who will not taste death until they see the kingdom, um, and then the transfiguration comes right after that statement, right? In all three of the, what we call the synoptic gospels, it follows each other. So what, what is the point? The point is, or the conclusion, is that Jesus was not referring to, to the future kingdom of, of uh, the literal kingdom that is to come. He is referring to the transfiguration. He's referring to this glimpse of what the kingdom is going to be when Jesus comes in glory. Jesus knew the cost of discipleship. He knew that it was difficult to bear. So he offers some encouragement. He's encouraging the faith of these three disciples, his inner circle. And he does that by taking them up to the mountain. Uh, Danny Aiken, a commentator and theologian, uses three phrases here to break down this passage. And they're going to serve as our outline this morning. And the first is to look at Jesus, to listen to Jesus, and to learn from Jesus. And hopefully we can learn those same lessons that the disciples were meant to learn as well. But first, look at Jesus. Look at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. This mountain is thought to be Mount Hermon. And, and once on this mountain, Luke's gospel tells us that they prayed. They went up there to pray. Luke also tells us that while they're up, to, up there, the disciples fall asleep. <laughs> Shades of things to come, maybe, right? If you, if you know the rest of the story, uh, later in the garden, the disciples would fall asleep again where Jesus is trying to pray with them. And as they are in that condition, the rest of verse 2 tells us what happens next. Talking about Jesus. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And so in their slumber, they, they nearly missed this moment, right? They're sleeping and they nearly miss the transfiguration of Jesus. But what a wake-up call that would have been. Here, they're on the mountain and before them, Jesus transfigures, or we could say metamorphosed, right? He transforms, he changes right before their eyes. Ward Wearsby says, it's a change on the outside that comes from the inside. A change on the outside that comes from the inside. And what's, what's visual to them is that his clothes became radiant, intensely white. Or Luke says, dazzling white. Psalm chapter 104 verse 1 tells us that God is clothed with majesty and splendor. Matthew says that his face, Jesus' face, uh, shone like the sun. Now, we, we want to just make a quick comment here. In the Bible, there's another character in the Bible who, who after meeting with God, his face showed. Remember, this was Moses when he met with Jesus on the mountain. He had to veil his face because it was too bright for people. But in that case, Moses was reflecting the glory of God. Here, there's no reflecting. It's revealing the glory of God. These are two very, very different things. Jesus isn't reflecting anything. He is revealing something. In this moment, the humanity of Jesus was lifted and his glory was unveiled. Kent Hughes says that he, talking about Jesus, slipped back into eternity to his pre-human glory. Like, this is amazing. This is an amazing moment. Jesus was unveiling or reve revealing his deity. That he's not just a man. That he, in fact, is divine. That he is God. He is the Messiah God. 
Like there's no way for us to adequately um, describe this event, right? Our imaginations can't quite even get there. Like Mark is giving to us a description of the clothes changing in this whiteness and this brilliance and this dazzling color that we can't, that bleach can't even get us there. But, but even still, even all of that, the glory of God. We might be able to get a color. We might be able to get a, a brightness. But the glory of God, the, the weight of God himself in their presence. Amazing. It's an amazing moment. And again, to better understand why Jesus is doing this, keep, keep close to what is happening. right? Keep close to the previous events, the, this cost of discipleship. We as Jesus' disciples are prone to say, man, is this worth it? Is following Jesus worth it? Is it even true? Is the, is the end really what Jesus says the end is going to be? Is there actually a kingdom that's going to come? Is there actually glory after all this suffering? Is it even worth it? And here in the revelation, Jesus is, is showing to them. He's giving them a glimpse of his glory and a glimpse of what is to come when he returns. So this revelation serves to encourage the faith of his followers. He's saying, guys, I am actually God. The things that I'm telling you are real. The glory is coming. The kingdom is coming. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it to give your life for this cause. Now, if that was not enough, verse 4 tells us, and then there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So if, if this brilliance isn't um, uh, enough, now two characters from the Bible show up. Two pretty, pretty big deals, Elijah and Moses. Now, we might wonder, if you're just reading the Bible plainly, how, how do we know that they're Elijah and Moses? How did anybody know that were they wearing name badges? Like, how, how do they know they lived? I mean, Elijah was 900 years dead. Moses was 1,400 years dead. So how do we even know? Most logically, they introduced themselves. They said who they were. There probably wasn't any pictures of these people, right? So, so they, they had to identify themselves in some ways. And then we find out, what, what were they doing there? They're talking to Jesus. They're talking with Jesus. Can you imagine, you're, you're a fly on the wall on the mountain and hear these, what we would call heroes of the Old Testament, are talking with Jesus, having a conversation. What are they talking about? Well, to harmonizing the, the Gospels as a whole, we find out that they were actually talking about his departure from Luke chapter 9. This Greek word, departure, is where we get our word exodus. They were talking about his death. They were talking about what would happen to Jesus. They're talking about his, his soon-to-be death, which he had talked to his disciples already about. We saw at the end of chapter 8. But why them? Why Elijah and Moses? Is that just a random choice? Uh, why not Abraham, Father Abraham? Why not David, King David? Those are, those are two pretty big uh, voices, two notable lives. Uh, what about um, someone like Adam? <laughs> Why not Adam? Why not Judah? Uh, we could go down the list. Why not, why not, why not? Well, here's, here's a few things that we know about Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses both met God on a mountaintop. Uh, Elijah met God on Mount Horeb and Moses on Mount Sinai. Both Elijah and Moses saw God's glory. In 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, um, Elijah Here's the, the whisper, right? The, 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 uh, the small voice of God. And he is, God is revealed to him. Moses was in the cleft of the rock. Remember that story. Both Elijah and Moses had notable departures. Elijah's was in a flaming chariot 
where he did not taste death at all. And Moses' death, we remember, was on Mount Nebo overlooking the promised land, which he was not allowed to enter. They both kind of notable endings of their lives. But in short, what we can know is this, that Elijah represented the prophets and Moses represented the law. So that's a shorthand. When the Bible talks about the law and the prophets, it's talking about the Old Testament. It's talking about the, the, the work of God in what we call the Old Testament. The point is that what? That Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Here are two people representing the law and the prophets. And then there's Jesus. And Jesus is revealing his glory. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, yeah, that was good. I fulfilled all that. In fact, that's what Jesus says, actually says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where he says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill them, which is something for another time. But that is a super important part of what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to abolish. He didn't come to say the law doesn't matter. The prophets don't matter. Only I matter now. No, he came to fulfill all the things that they prophesied, all the things that they said would happen. Jesus is coming to fulfill all of them. So there they are, Jesus, Elijah, Moses, talking about his departure. And to this, Peter responds in verse, verse five and six. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi or teacher, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Well, Peter starts off pretty well, right? Seemingly well. It's good that we're here. Teacher, it's good that we're here. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he brought you here for a reason. It is good that you're here. That, that's, a, that's a fairly good response. But then here at this moment, right? Just like, take it in, right? This moment of revelation. This moment of awe and wonder. And Peter says, let's build tents. Right? It, it seems so out of place. It seems so um, not what you would expect for someone to say in that moment. There are other places in the Bible where, where people are confronted with God. Right? You think of the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah being confronted with the glory of God in the vision. And what does he say? Woe is me. I am undone. A man of unclean lips. Right? He, is, he is completely humbled by the glory of God. And here, Peter is saying, let's build tents. What, what is he doing here? Well, First off, it tells us that he's terrified. He didn't know what to say. And maybe you've, you've had this experience, right? Where you don't know what to say, so you just say something. <laughs> you, 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 just can't, you don't know how to, you don't know what to do. And you just start to talk. Right? Better probably for us to not talk than to talk and you know, uh, remove all doubt of however that quote goes. But, but here, he's terrified and, and, he, and he speaks. Uh, the suggestion here was, was either ignorance at best or irreverence at worst. Back in chapter eight, verse 33, Jesus says to Peter that he, he, his mind is on the things of man, man that he, he doesn't understand the work of Jesus. So, so run it back again. Jesus is, is being unveiled before him. The son of God is standing right in front of him. His glory is revealed to him. And Peter is thinking about building tents, tents for all of them. Well, first, first off, let's just say this, that there's no equality among Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Right? So, so to, to think like we'll just have this habitation for these three guys as though they are equals is foolishness. It is heresy. They are not equal. There is no one that is equal to Jesus. There is no comparison between the three. 
But what's interesting here is after Moses, or after, after Peter makes this uh, suggestion about Moses and about Elijah in the tents, Jesus doesn't say anything. Like there's just silence from, from Jesus. Right? Here, here Peter makes this recommendation, this suggestion, let's do this. And Jesus is just like, nope. Right? No, no, no response, which is itself telling. Peter's mind was not on the eternal, it was on the earthly. It was on the temporal. It was on the material. By building the temples, Peter is trying to say, I want this to last. I want to stay here. Let's build, let's build tents. Let's set up camp. Let's let this be the way we live. I can handle this. I could handle this with, with you and Elijah and with Moses. He wanted the mountaintop experience to last. But as we looked at last week in chapter 8, that is not the life of Christian discipleship. Christian discipleship is not all mountaintops. In fact, it is suffering before the mountaintop. It is suffering then glory. That's how it was for Jesus. That's how it would be for the disciples. And that's how it will be for you and me. Peter seems to be missing it. And it's easy for us to, to look at Peter and say, why doesn't he understand that? How could, he, how could he miss that? How could he not understand what God is doing in the world? How could he, he not understand the, the glory of God and, and be humbled by God and submitted, submissive to God? But it's not just Peter, is it? It's you and it's me too. It's easy for us to do the same thing. For us to, to want something that clearly is not what was meant to be. What God wants to be. We do this when we elevate our comforts or our wishes or our ideas above God's will and God's way. So how could it be any different? How could, how could we learn from Peter? By looking at Jesus, by knowing something about Jesus, and by looking to the things that are above. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Then verse 2 says this, Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Here's the invitation that we see in the transfiguration is to look at Jesus. Look at him. Behold him. See him for who he is. Don't try to, to make him into what you want him to be. See him for who he is. And as we do, the hymn writer is correct. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So I ask you, who are you looking at? Or what are you looking at today? What are your eyes fixed on? Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. If we're going to run this race of faithfulness, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. He is our hope. Yes, we live in a material world, but the material is not our hope. The earthly is not our hope. Our only hope is in Jesus. Well, from the silence of Jesus comes a cloud and then a heavenly voice in verses seven and eight. Look at it. Verse seven, the cloud overshadowed them, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. First, we see the cloud or a luminous cloud overshadows them. Now, a cloud in the Old Testament uh, represented or signified the, the manifest presence of God. Right? So you think of places in the Old Testament where, where we saw a cloud descend. 
Think about the pillar of cloud that led the people of God in the wilderness. Think about on Mount Sinai when Moses went up onto the, onto the, the mountain and the cloud descended. Or when Moses was on the cleft of the rock. Or in the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. Or in Solomon's temple in 1 Kings chapter 8 verses 10 and 11. Right? This idea of the cloud descending is the presence of God uh, manifesting itself uh, here in a, in, a physical, uh, in a physical way. But not only was there a cloud, next we see that there's a voice. And the voice says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This is the voice of the father. This is the voice of father God confirming the ministry and the mission of his son and saying, listen to him. Now we saw this back in chapter one when, when Jesus was baptized, that a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Another confirmation of Jesus before his public ministry began. Jesus was not on his own here, right? That's what, that's what the father's saying. Jesus is just running around. Jesus is just doing his own thing. No, no, this is actually my son. He's doing my work. And this revelation is to show you who he really is. Pay attention to him. Listen to him. Why? Because he's my son. He is the son of God. That's why. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18, Moses wrote this. So a long time before Jesus, Moses writes this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Then verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. T turn to your Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 1001. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The writer says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. How? By the prophets. But in these last days, which we are still in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God has spoken. We must listen. How has God spoken to us? Through his son. Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to you and me, this is my son, listen to him. Now our problem in the church and among some Christians, but in the world as, as a whole, is not so much that we don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, some people don't believe that. That's true. But our bigger problem is that we want to edit his word. It's not that we don't believe that he said anything, but we want to edit it. We want to uh, modernize it. We want to bring it into this day. We want to interpret it according to the wisdom of the age. The problem with that is the wisdom of the age is ever-changing. If you're trying to interpret the Bible with culture, the, the, the view of culture is constantly changing. 
So what does that mean? That means the interpretation of the Bible is going to be constantly changing. When Christ and culture collide, hear the words of the Father. Listen to Jesus. Jesus is who anchors the word. It is the word of Jesus. It's the word of God himself that anchors the meaning of the text. It is not what the culture says. Listen, we've all experienced the radical nature of, of a shifting cultural view of morality, of, of, of sexuality, of marriage. In, in years' time, these things have eroded. Things that were held for hundreds or thousands of years are now being eroded. Why? Because they've been detached from the source of truth. They've been detached from, from Jesus himself. When the culture collides with Christ, hear the Father's word, listen to Jesus. J.C. Ryle writes this, The grand question that concerns us all is not so much what man says, or ministers say, what the church says, or what councils say, but what says Christ? Here, let us hear him. In him, let us abide. On him let us lead. To him let us look. He and he only will never fail us, never disappoint us, never lead us astray. If you want to know how we should view the current cultural moments, the, the issues that, that stand before us morally, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Don't, don't, don't listen to the media. Don't listen to pop culture. Don't listen to your professors. Don't listen to the blogs. Listen to Jesus. Back to Mark 9, verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And so here's this mountaintop experience. Here's Jesus. Here's Elijah. Here's Moses. Here's the voice of God coming to them. And then in a moment, suddenly, everybody's gone but Jesus only. <laughs> love that. Don't you love that? In the end, it's Jesus only. When all is said and done, it doesn't matter what anyone else has to say. Jesus only. Ward Wearsby writes, the memory of the visions will fade, but the unchanging word abides forever. Listen to Jesus. Well, Jesus was not done with the disciples quite yet. Look to verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, we are familiar with Jesus giving these injunctions to silence, telling people, don't tell anybody about what just happened. They might have been healed. Don't tell anybody. He does this multiple times. This is the last time he's going to do it, but it's also the only time that he does it with a, a, a time limit. Right? He tells them, don't tell anybody until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So there, there's, a, there's a period of time. Why is there a period of time? Well, Jesus, again, does not want to cause a political uprising. If people know he's the Messiah, they're going to want to take him as their king. We saw this in John chapter 6. When people hear that the Messiah is here, the people who are thinking politically or nationalistically, they want Jesus to be king and take over this place, take over rule, free them from Rome. And that's not the mission of Jesus. His mission was to suffer and to die. Well, from that injunction, they have questions, which we've come to expect of the, uh, of the disciples. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, they didn't have a category for this. 
They didn't have a category for the Messiah dying and rising again before the resurrection of everyone. They had, a, they had an idea of the resurrection of everyone. They didn't have an idea of the Messiah dying and rising again, which Jesus will correct her or, or, or uh, address in verse 12. Look at verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I feel like Jesus is shifting gears on them there. But here, Jesus is affirming that the prophecy of, he's confirming the prophecies about Elijah. Uh, Elijah was prophesied to, to come before the Messiah in uh, Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4. But Jesus is also saying in the rest of verse 12 that, you know what else? There's prophecies about the Son of Man too. So, so you understand the prophecies about Elijah, but do you understand that the same Old Testament that prophesies about Elijah also prophesies that there's going to be a son of man who comes and dies and rises again. You're willing to accept what the, the Old Testament is teaching or try to understand it on Elijah. Why aren't you seeing it with the son of man? They believed the first about Elijah, but they were not understanding the second about the son of man. Well, Jesus continues in verse 13. It says, I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So Jesus contends that Elijah, this prophecy of Elijah, this promise or the prediction of Elijah, that, had, that, that came. That Elijah did come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written. What is Jesus talking about? When did Elijah come? Not at the transfiguration. When did Elijah come? Well, again, a, a further reading of the scriptures in Matthew chapter 16 uh, points out that they understood that he's talking about John the Baptist that Jesus was referring to the coming of Elijah as the coming of John the Baptist. Why? Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 tells us that it was Elijah who came, excuse me, it was John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He came as the forerunner of Jesus. He came to restore all things, what verse 12 says, to restore all things or to prepare the way for the Messiah. He came and they did to him whatever they pleased. That means they killed him. We find that John the Baptist was imprisoned. He was killed for his faithful ministry. We also find that the same fate would await Jesus, who also would suffer and die. So as we look at Jesus, as we listen to Jesus, we can learn from Jesus that he was the one who the prophets wrote about. He is the Messiah who would come to suffer and be treated with contempt. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, God's beloved Son who would suffer, die, and rise again. And why did he do that? Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, The Son of God became man, that the children of men might become the children of God. That's why he did it. That's why he had to do it. The disciples didn't understand that even though they had Jesus standing right in front of them. How could, a, a, how could the children of men become children of God? Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Or John chapter 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. This morning, as we come again to the Lord's Supper, we see again the work of Jesus his body that was pierced, his blood that was shed. And it was through that work, it's through the work on the cross that one can become a child of God. It is because Jesus came, suffered and died that we can one day live, 
There is no salvation without the cross. There is no glory without suffering. Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for our sins, came that we might be saved. The disciples struggled to get it, right? Jesus is there in the flesh, and they're struggling to get it. And so we invite you this morning, will you look at Jesus? Will you look on him again? Will you listen to him? What has he said? What has he said he would do? And he did it. And will you learn from him? Will you believe on him? Now, if you know this Jesus, if you have placed your faith in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and believed, then we invite you to remember his work this morning as we take of the bread and the cup. But if you have yet to come to him in faith, that is, you have not repented of your sins, you have not trusted him alone for salvation, then we would ask for you to abstain from taking of the bread and the cup this morning. And instead, instead of taking of these two symbols, we invite you to take of Jesus himself, to come to Jesus and find in him the forgiveness of your sins, the hope of heaven, eternal life that starts now and lasts forever. And you can do that. The scriptures tell us whoever will repent and believe may be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Oh God.